coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona, the heart of the Valley of the Sun. This is Mets Fans Out West, and now here's your host, Steve Velarde. What the hell is this podcast, and who the hell is this guy? Both excellent questions, and I'm going to answer those and many more in this first episode of Mets Fans Out West. I'm your host, Steve Velarde. And today, we're going to cover what I'd like this podcast to be and what I hope to accomplish with it. I'm also going to go through the how, when, and why I moved from Brooklyn, New York to Phoenix, Arizona. And then finally, I'm going to go through my own personal history as a fan of the New York Mets. Now, first off, I just want to make something clear. I have been using the subtitle, A Podcast About Long-Distance Relationships. The long-distance relationships I'm talking about here are specifically between the New York Mets and their fans who have moved to the western part of the country from the uh, New York metropolitan area, let's say. So if you are here seeking uh, romantic advice, you are definitely... uh, Definitely in the wrong store. I also want to make it clear that uh, if you're looking for the latest breaking Mets news and discussion, this is not that podcast. In each episode, I will interview a different fan that has made the move out west. Now, at the moment, I think I have enough guests to get through uh, what I'd like to do get through this baseball season, and I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm planning. Um, So this first drop, uh, (laughs) drop, uh, three episodes sometime during spring training, uh, and then an episode around opening day, and then another episode around the first week of every month throughout the season, hopefully culminating in a celebration uh, episode in November, right? Right. So if I end up sticking to that schedule, I think I have enough people lined up, at least in my head, (laughs) to get through uh, this season. However, if it, you know, is really fun and easier to produce and fits into my schedule to do uh, more episodes, we might, uh, you know, I might up it to two a month and I might be looking for guests at some point. But at the moment, I think I am good. Now, what I hope to do with this podcast is to build this community of Mets fans out in this end of the country. I've already noticed some uh, Facebook groups, uh, specifically uh, Mets fans living in AZ, um, Arizona, and the San Diego Mets fans. I'm a member of both. Uh, Maybe there are some more out there that I'm not uh, aware of. Please let me know. Uh, And basically, I'd like to just try and unify all those groups and maybe, maybe... You know, if this goes and is uh, successful, we could start planning uh, some trips as a group to when the Mets come to this part of the country. 
perhaps we might even be able to get a small one off this season when the Mets come to Phoenix, uh, which it's 4th of July. It's right smack dab in the middle of the week, and uh, I believe they're there the uh, 3rd, 4th, and 5th. But, you know, more on that later. Let's uh, let's see if anybody uh, listens first. <laughs> I was uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, um, and other than four years in Boston for college, uh, I have lived my whole life in Brooklyn, New York, until... October 2021 is when we moved out here to Phoenix. Uh, When I say we, I mean my lovely wife, Lauren, and I. And we both really like it here uh, so far. Here's how I think that all happened. Uh, I mentioned I went to uh, Emerson College in Boston. And uh, a lot of my friends, it's got a great film and TV uh, program and a lot of my friends that were into film and tv uh came out to la for their last uh semester of senior year and i came out to visit them on spring break and i was like it's the first time i had ever been to uh los angeles and you know i just thought it was gorgeous and uh i said hey you know maybe i'll come out live out here with uh with you guys And then I guess life just kind of got in the way and I kind of got distracted for uh, for 20 years. (laughs) Um, And I didn't even really come to visit until about uh, 2016. You know, I finally had a little extra money to go on vacation and I was like, you know, it's time to go see these guys in L.A. again. So I decided to go out there and I was like, man, it is gorgeous out here. I love it. And uh, I was already kind of getting sick of the cold weather and uh, the shoveling snow. So it was already kind of in the back of my head that uh, eventually I would move out uh, to the West Coast. And uh, I had met Lauren in uh, 2018, and she was all down for the move to L.A. as well. So in the back of my head, I was like, now if we don't like L.A., Maybe we'll try San Diego or Austin or Phoenix, you know. Uh, then COVID happened. We were stuck in New York and um, didn't really know what the future was going to hold. Uh, I had some health concerns as well, which we will also get into at another time. So then one night I'm watching uh, TV I'm watching one of my favorite shows because I am a bartender. I really enjoy watching uh, Bar Rescue. This particular episode took place in Tempe, Arizona. And I was like, wow, it's it's really pretty there. I was like, that's, yeah, that's that's Phoenix. That's right next to Phoenix. And uh, couple, I was just kind of marinating on it for a couple of days. And then finally I said to Lauren, uh, what do you think about going to Phoenix? And uh, she really loved the idea. It really appealed to her, and she said she always kind of felt like she would end up here in Arizona, which I did too during college. I I kind of felt that way. And again, I just kind of forgot about it. So yeah, it just kind of became, instead of, hey, if we don't like LA, let's try Phoenix, it switched and became, hey, let's move to Phoenix, and if we don't like it there, then maybe we'll try LA. 
Uh, we are smack dab in the middle of downtown Phoenix, which, you know, coming from New York kind of made us, uh, you know, feel like it's very familiar. It's got the parts that, you know, look like a gritty real city, but then also like late at night, you can hear the railroad, the like uh, Union Pacific Railroad off in the distance. And it's, uh, you know, and that kind of feels so small town to me, at least. Yeah, we've been here just about a year and a half. We drove across the country, which I highly recommend. Uh, it was a blast. And um, aside from the beautiful weather and stuff like that, you know, the obvious stuff, I wanted to come out here because I wanted to get involved with baseball. Uh, and it's pretty much year-round here between spring training, the Diamondbacks, the Fall League, and uh, the colleges. Uh, there's always baseball happening in Arizona. I've also done some acting and performing, and the goal is to be a PA announcer in one of these uh, ballparks here. I don't mean sportscaster. I don't mean someone on the radio or the TV, um, you know, calling the game. That's a whole different skill that I'm way too old to get started with. Takes years and years of education and practice. I'm talking about PA announcer, which is a whole different uh, skill set, uh, more of which I possess. That is the person who is live at the stadium saying, uh, now batting, Number five, David Wright, and uh, so on. So that's the plan, to eventually do that somewhere, hopefully in, in, in the valley. That's what, that's what the kids say here, the Phoenix metropolitan area. It is the Salt River Valley, also known as the Valley of the Sun. But uh, enough of that. This ain't, uh, this ain't no geography class. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what else do I need to mention before I get on to, uh, just purely Met stuff? Uh, I have mentioned that I've performed before, but this is the first time I am attempting a podcast. Uh, I I'm not afraid of the microphone, but, oh, I am definitely afraid of the te technical aspects of, uh, of this project. So, uh, I can pretty much tell you that these first episodes might be a little clunky, but uh, I guarantee they will get better as uh, I get more familiar with uh, with all this stuff. So please just bear with me, and, uh, you know, this is a learning experience for me as well, but uh, I think the subject matter is fun, so it's worth a shot. I was born in 1976. I was Born into a family in Brooklyn, New York, a middle-class family, baseball roots in New York and in the National League. My mom had grown up in Brooklyn as a Dodgers fan, a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and my dad grew up in the Bronx and later Manhattan as a New York Giants fan. Um, in 1982... I have a memory of Tommy Agee coming to visit my elementary school. 
and they showed the catches from the 69 World Series. He handed out uh, 1982 Mets photo albums, which, uh, which I have somewhere around here. And then I heard about this guy, and his name was Mookie. And uh, I'd say this was 1983. He was kind of an explosive player, and he ran really fast and stole bases, and I loved that. And, you know, I just loved the word. I was a little kid. I liked the word Mookie. I liked the way it sounded. And then all of a sudden, this guy Mookie has a friend named Strawberry. And suddenly I was, uh, I was getting into watching the Mets. And uh, my family noticed, my brother noticed, and uh, took me to my first game uh, at Shea against the Phillies on... September 6th, 1983. By the ninth inning, you know, I was a little kid. I was bored. I had a yearbook. Uh, My brother got, my brother Mike got me a yearbook. So I was sitting there with my head buried in the yearbook. And then all of a sudden, everybody gets up and cheers. And uh, Mookie Wilson had hit uh, a walk-off hit. So that was the end of 83. Again, they, they didn't have a good year. But I was starting to get into it. And then in 1984, they had a much better year. And I really remember that, that stretch against the Cubs towards the end. It was interesting. It was, a, it was a pennant race, you know, just learning all the intricacies of the game itself and how um, the standings and all that stuff kind of worked. I was really getting into it then. Uh, during that 1984 pennant race, which, of course, uh, have a memory of a big family party, like uh, out on Long Island. And it was a game at the end of the year against the Cubs, I believe, and they were neck and neck in the standings. And, uh, (laughs) you know, summertime party out in big house. Everybody's outside playing and barbecuing and whatever, and I'm by myself in the living room (laughs) watching the Met game, you know, I'm like eight years old, seven years old, like I got money on it already, uh, missing the whole party. But uh, it was a foreshadowing of uh, things to come, as you'll uh, hear about shortly. The end of 84, I remember the day that the Mets got Gary Carter. Here's something weird I remember about that day. I don't know why, I just will always connect the two things, but... um, There must have been some kind of home improvement project going on in my house uh, on that day, right before Christmas. Christmas was usually at our house, so it was probably, you know, let's try to get this done before before the holidays. Um, So something like painting or wallpapering was going on in the living room because I remember that the living room was in home improvement mode, which meant that the sofa was, instead of against the wall, it was pushed out to the middle of the floor, you know, like much closer to the TV. And I remember uh, sitting on that sofa that close to the TV watching this news about Gary Carter, uh, who I didn't know yet, but it seemed to be a big deal, you know, but with or without Gary Carter, I I was already looking forward to 1985. But, I mean, I don't know what it was about Gary Carter. I don't really remember that opening day uh, against the Cardinals when he hits the walk-off home run and endears himself to all the Met fans immediately. I don't really remember that, but I just remember very quickly he became 
uh, my favorite Met. I mean, he had a great year. Let's see. So 1985, early in the year, uh, we went to a game. I think this was only my second game. I don't think I went to any games in 84. Um, And the game we ended up going to was on May 10th. And what happened that day was Daryl Strawberry dove to catch uh, a sinking line drive. And I believe he tore some ligaments in his thumb and uh, he was uh, out for six weeks. And uh, who knows, that might have cost the Mets some uh, some games that cost them the, the uh, National League East that year. We will never know, but we just happened to be there that day. But uh, yeah, Gary Carter had a great year, 32 home runs, 100 RBIs. I remember, uh, you know, sometime during 86, probably... <laughs> Um, my sister's coming home from like being out and partying and they came home and I was asleep and they would, and they woke me up and they'd be like, wake up, wake up, Steven, wake up. Gary Carter's on the phone. He wants to know how many home runs he hit last year. And I'd be half asleep and I'd be like, "Mm, 32, (laughs) you know, um, I insisted that I had knee problems like Gary Carter, even though I was only, what, eight, nine? Uh, I was insisting that I had bad knees and needed uh, arthroscopic surgery. Uh, I I still don't know what that means. I I don't know. I certainly didn't know what it meant then. I just knew that uh, if Gary Carter had that surgery, I want to have that surgery too. And I think to all of us at that time, Gary Carter's batting stance just looked so different, so weird from everyone else. It seemed like he had his arms fully extended and they were just, his hands were so far away from the rest of his body. You look at it now, it's it's not a big deal, but like everyone kind of, it wasn't just me that thought that uh, at that time, I seem to remember. But um, I mean, I could still probably imitate all the uh, 86 Mets batting stance. I would say one through five for sure. Dykstra, Backman, Hernandez, Carter, Strawberry, I could, you know, they're all going to be right-handed, but I could still, like, uh, mimic their batting stance. So, yes, we all remember the heartbreak of 85. I think that was the year I really, really got into baseball. Like in 84, once the season was over and the Mets were out of it, I wasn't watching the playoffs. I wasn't watching the World Series. But in 85, I watched the ALCS, the NLCS, and the World Series. I was very into it and very uh, very much into hoping to see the Cardinals lose, which they did. And, uh, you know, now years later, (laughs) it was probably stolen from them, but... uh, That's another story for another podcast. Yeah, I'm really getting into it once 85 is over. And once the season is over, it's like anything I can get my hands on to read about the Mets or baseball in general. You know, I just uh, absolutely devoured. I remember there was like a sticker album with all the facts about all the stadiums. Probably a Topps uh, sticker album. You know, it was divided by team, and then they would tell you the name of each stadium and, like, the attendance and when it was built, and, you know, I just had all that stuff 
memorized. There was this uh, magazine I had called Play Ball with Dwight Gooden on the front, and um, I think I still have it, even with little drawings all over it that it accumulated throughout the years. But I just read that over and over and over again. Uh, again, that 83 yearbook that I had my head in when Mookie hit that uh, walk-off hit. Right, the 83 yearbook had this 10-year retrospective on the 73 team, so I knew all about the 73 team from reading that over and over again. And then there was this, uh, from 1985, from a giveaway at Shea, was the 1985 Snapper Calendar. I don't know if you remember, for a few years, the Mets would always have Snapper Calendar Day towards, uh, you know, in April, and you would get the calendar with the Mets schedule in it. And uh, this 1985 one, I don't think I went to the game that year. I think someone went, my sister Helen probably went and gave me uh, and got an extra copy of a calendar for me. And, you know, it was like all the Mets birthdays and like big days in Mets history, plus the schedule. And I would just read that over and over and over again. And then uh, Snapper Calendar Day, going to Snapper Calendar Day kind of became a tradition in my family for a couple of years. So on Snapper Calendar Day in 1986, we knew that uh, Gooden was going to pitch that day. And, you know, Gary Carter was the catcher. So Helen got this great idea to make this clever sign. Uh, <laughs> and it said, uh, Dr. K and Gary, a double A battery with a drawing of like a... a supposed to look like a Duracell battery pitching to another Duracell battery. Very proud of ourselves and very proud of our sign. And we went to the game and we were ready to uh, to show it to the world. And then we got there and sat down and looked at the lineups. And Gary Carter, I guess it was a day game after a night game, uh, Gary Carter was playing left field and Barry Lyons was catching. And, uh, you know, I'm like nine. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe we can uh, switch the G to a B and the 8 to a 33, and then it'll say Dr. K and Barry. And Helen was like, now. <laughs> uh, I think maybe in the ninth inning, uh, Carter got behind the plate, but I, I don't remember for real. But <laughs> that was pretty funny. Anyway, in uh, that period, my sister Helen scored, would keep score of all the Met games. And uh, she did this for a few years. We went to a uh, a baseball card show, uh, an autograph show in Brooklyn. I believe it was 86. And Helen had her, her uh, binder of, uh, of games from 85, I guess, and... Uh, at this, this was at uh, Regina Pachis, Regina Pachis, Catholic school in Brooklyn in Bensonhurst. Uh, Dykstra was there, Backman and uh, and Daryl Strawberry was were there. We all remember Dykstra. Uh, very very impressed that my sister had it. She has all the stats. She has all the stats with his uh, very pronounced lisp, but he was very impressed with her uh, her book of stats. I believe at that show, oh yeah, that was the show, Buddy Harrelson was there as well, 
and he let me try on his 1969 World Series ring, uh, which I, you know, I will forever remember and cherish. However, I've realized now in these later years uh, with Facebook groups and whatever of Met fans that this was kind of like his shtick, that <laughs> lots of people say, oh, I met him one time and he let me try on his world. It doesn't take anything away from it. It was awesome. I thought it was the best thing ever. Um, and my sis- and Helen just told me that Mike Schmidt was at this show, that at this baseball card show as well in Brooklyn. And <laughs> there was like nobody waiting in line to get his autograph. Hall of Famer, Mike Schmidt. Uh, you know, people, uh, weren't interested in him because the 86 Mets were there. I never really got into baseball cards that much, a little bit here and there, but, uh, we did go to another baseball card show out on Long Island, uh, according to Helen, and that's where I first met, uh, Gary Carter. So, you know, of course I, uh, lost my mind and, uh, still have that autograph somewhere. I have several Carter autographs, but, uh... Yep, that was the first one. So let's see, what other memories do I have of 1986? If you hear that bell ringing, that's uh, my co-host and uh, our cat, Ralph. <laughs> He's walking around looking like a dunderhead right now. Um, but I made an executive decision that I'm going to keep the door open, and if Ralphie comes in, Ralphie comes in. Here's the thing, in New York, there were a lot of parts of New York City... Uh, especially Brooklyn, where I lived in Gravesend, you know, the outer, outer boroughs. We didn't have cable until, like, I was in high school in the 90s. At that point, half the games were on Sports Channel, and uh, half the games were on Channel 9. And we listened to a lot of the games on radio. You know, it was like one of those old, big pieces that my parents had. It was like a piece of furniture with a turntable and like an eight track player and then a section for you to store your records and then the big speakers were part of it too. Oh, it was just massive and it was near the front door. So if it was nice out, you know, you'd sit on the porch and you'd put on the ball game and you'd hear it out there or, you know, you'd like lay in front of it and, and, and listen to the ball game. Now, if there was a big game happening my wonderful next door neighbors growing up the petitos hello i woke up one morning and looked out the back window of my room looked like a spaceship had landed in the yard but it was a satellite dish i guess that was the summer of 86 because i was always kind of allowed to watch big games over there with them because they're awesome and uh (laughs) let me hang out with them all the time i was always in their pool and they're the best Um, But yes, I watched the 86 clincher at the Petito's house because it was a game on Sports Channel. So the World Series came, and I remember uh, game one, I was at a Halloween party, Kimberly Carroll's uh, Halloween party at her grandmother's house. She had it every year. It was uh, all the A-list celebs of elementary school were there. It was not to be missed. So I went, even though it was game one of the World Series, and once again, I'm off in a in a little room by myself watching the game. 
while everyone else is uh, having a good time and being kids at uh, at the Halloween party. Is the 86 World Series ever talked about um, on TV and in the media and stuff? Hmm. Maybe uh, we can skip that for now. I think I was so spoiled to have my team win the World Series just as I was turning 10. Like, is there a better time for that to be happening? I often say that October 27th, 1986, the day they won the World Series, that that was the greatest day of my life, and every day since has been a tie for worst. But obviously, I'm I'm just kidding. That was it. The Mets were world champions. I was 10, and I thought this was going to happen a lot <laughs> in my life. I mean, uh, I was allowed to skip school and... Um, and go to the parade. Um, and yeah, Mookie Wilson said, 1986, year of the Mets. 1987, year of the Mets. 1988, year of the Mets. It didn't happen, Mook. <sighs> Still waiting. My birthday is on November 9th. So my 10th birthday party that year was to be a Mets World Series celebration. And then the day of the party, I woke up and I was not feeling great. And I got the chicken pox on the day of my 10th birthday party. So that superb uh, Mets-themed birthday party had to be uh, postponed for uh, for a week. That off-season uh, between 86 and 87 was, again, uh, very important to my development as a Met fan because now I was missing the actual games so what was I going to do? I, I was going to, well, like the year before, I read everything, and I continued to do that, but now uh, videotapes had entered the picture, particularly the uh, 25th, 1986 was the Mets' 25th anniversary. At the beginning of 86, they came out with this video called An Amazing Era, about the first 25 years of the Mets, and I wore that thing out, watched it over and over and over again. And then uh, after they won in 86, they came out with that uh, 1986 Mets, A Year to Remember. Again, watched that over and over again. The music <laughs> from, oh yeah, well, there was also the Let's Go Mets Go music video, uh, plus the record, you know, I have all that crap right here. But um, but the music education I also got from those two videos, A Year to Remember, they had Duran uh, Duran, The Wild Boys are calling, for uh, Dykstra and Vackman were the Wild Boys to the Duran Duran song, You Belong to the City, and uh, that was again on the 86 video. Uh, welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. Uh, uh, and then the Amazing Era video, anytime someone got traded, they would show their picture and then play ch ch ch, -ch changes and That was the first time I had ever heard any of these songs. Uh, what was the end of uh, an Amazing Era? They played that Neil Diamond what a Beautiful Noise, uh, all these songs. It was quite, besides getting an education in the Mets and in baseball, it, it was quite a musical education. And then you would hear the songs years later on the radio and say, oh, that's a real song. That's not just from, uh, you know, from that Mets video. <laughs> 
1987 comes along. We all have big expectations, as we know. Uh, they fell short. We went to, I believe it was Snapper Calendar Day, and we were at that game. Uh, they had just acquired Kevin McReynolds. He was playing in left field, and someone hit a fly ball, and it hit uh, a pigeon. Uh, someone hit a fly ball to left field. McReynolds was getting under it to catch it, and it hit a pigeon and killed the pigeon, and uh, the ball fell to the ground. You know, the, the trajectory of the, of the fly ball was messed up now. It hit the ground, and they ruled it a ground rule double. The Mets ended up losing that game, and it was just such, such a bizarre thing to see live. I think that was the summer we also went to the Hall of Fame. My mom, my dad, Helen, and myself... Yeah, and again, that's a great time to go when you're 11 and your team just won the World Series. 88 came along. I was I had my retirement plan all worked out because I had my Greg Jeffries rookie card. I had the Donruss. I had the Fleer. I had the Todd. You know, I was all ready. Whichever one of these rookie cards uh, became the, uh, the next Honus Wagner. I think we all know how that turned out. Uh, 88, we went to spring training. My mom, my, and Helen and I, uh, I believe that was the first year they were in Port St. Lucie. So we went to check it out because we had family nearby. And, uh, up until that point, they had been on the, on the West Coast in St. Pete. So now that they moved to the East Coast, we went down and we saw, uh, my Aunt Libby, my Uncle Don, my grandmother, and, uh, they were all down there. Oh, while we were there... We were in a shopping mall for some reason, and I saw Ron Darling in the mall, and once again, you know, lost my mind, embarrassed my sister, blah, blah, blah. So now something else significant that happened for me in 1988, that is the year I discovered the Beatles. Yeah, so at this point in my life, my interest started to transition from uh, baseball and sports into uh, music. When I was a kid, I would get obsessed with uh, movies, TV shows, specifically uh, po Popeye. In fact, I went to kindergarten one day with uh, a can of spinach tucked away. Uh, so that at snack time, I could pull this can of spinach out of my shirt like Popeye. I didn't have a can opener or anything, uh, or I just figured I would pull the spinach out and I'd squeeze it and the spinach would come out of the can and land in my mouth like Popeye, you know? Um, so yeah, I was obsessed with Popeye. Then I was obsessed with Star Wars. That was uh, around the time Return of the Jedi came out after Star Wars was a brief foray into Ghostbusters and Ghostbusting, like I made business cards and passed them out on my block, and I was like, you know, if you guys got a ghost, I'm the guy to call. Um, I charged a dollar, which was, you know, $4,999 less than the Ghostbusters in the movie, so... I figured that was a pretty good deal. Uh, anyway, my wonderful aunt uh, down the block, Aunt Chichi, she just happened to have a ghost every day and called me up, and I came over and took care of it and got a dollar. <laughs> Sweetheart. So then after Ghostbusters, that's when, you know, Ghostbusters was 84. 
Uh, and that's when I started to really get into the Mets. And then I was, you know, really obsessed with the Mets for a few years until 1988. And I discovered the Beatles. And then the Beatles became my new obsession and music. And uh, I had to take guitar lessons because, you know, I was going to be a rock star. I was already playing the trumpet in school, but, you know, I didn't think I was going to grow up to be a trumpet player. But now I wanted to be a Beatle. So I was taking guitar lessons for a couple of years, and I was, like, playing Beatles songs, the chords, and and singing along. And uh, after a couple of years, my guitar teacher, uh, wonderful Elliot Funtleider, who sent me down this path, so I blame him. Uh, but great guy, just passed away last year. And he was my music teacher in school where I was learning the trumpet, but he also gave me guitar lessons after school. And after about two years of this, he said, all right, I think you've gone about as far as you can go on the guitar. I don't really have think you have uh, the skills necessary for that, but... You sound really good when you're singing. I would I would look into that a little more, uh, which I did. And eventually that got me into doing uh, theater. I've mentioned my brother Mike and my sister Helen, who, you know, uh, were very influential on me with the sports and the Mets. Um, and then my other sister Nancy was very influential on me as to uh, the theater and the arts, and she was a singer uh, in wedding bands and stuff, and then she started doing community theater, and then I started going with her, and then, you know, you know, at first I was Nancy's little brother, and then after a few years, she was, that's Steve's older sister. So, and yeah, I became involved with that theater and other theaters uh, for several years after that. I'm getting into high school and, you know, junior high and high school, and I have these new interests, and it doesn't help that the Mets aren't very good during these years. So I got into college in Boston. My freshman year, we were living so close to uh, to Fenway Park. I mean, we just walked there all the time, walked around the outsides, uh, you know, went in whenever we could. There was a summer when we lived like just two blocks uh, away, like around the corner and two blocks away. And this was, you know, before Pedro, you know, was Pedro. It was still, and it was right after the strike um, in 94. So they weren't selling out every night like they do now or like they have in recent history. So, you know, Boston's a big college town. So Fenway had this deal uh if you showed up with your student ID after the sixth inning, you would get in for free. So that summer that we lived right down the block, you know, we would watch the first four, four and a half innings at home and then uh, walk down. And then by the time the sixth inning started, we were able to get in for free and watch the end of the game. And really, uh, yes, that atmosphere of Fenway Park really uh, got me back in love with baseball. Um Maybe not the Mets as much, uh, but yes, I was very much interested in baseball again. Um, and then, like, my best friend from college uh, was also uh, very much into baseball, and, you know, we kind of bonded over that. 
and uh, he's from Ohio, so I got to see a game at Riverfront Stadium. And then his brother was an uh, was an Expos fan, so actually his mom and brother drove from Ohio and picked us up in Boston, and we went up and we saw a game at the uh, Olympic Stadium up in Montreal. Um, so yeah, definitely the appreciation for baseball was coming back, um, if not, you know, just for the Mets. Uh, however, in Boston, now I don't remember, I was in college from 94 to 98. I don't remember if the Mets were on WOR or WPIX during that time period. I'm sure you guys know. I'm sure someone out there knows. Doesn't really matter. But whichever one it was, we got in Boston for some reason. Maybe it was PIX because the Yankees used to be on it and they wanted to keep an eye on the Yankees, but now the Mets were on PIX. I don't know. But whatever station the Mets were on during that time, we got in Boston. So, you know, still most of the games are on cable. So maybe the odd Sunday game here and there I would catch. But I was able uh, to kind of keep up with the Mets a little bit in that way. Now, once I graduated college, it was 1998. What excellent timing. Uh, I remember being on a trip with my with my brother and his wife and their kids, and we were going to Florida. My nephew Dominic was like two, two and a half, and then their triplets <laughs> were one, and uh, so they took me along, you know, all expenses paid, just help us with the kids, right after I graduated college. And it was while I was on this trip that the Mets got Mike Piazza. So it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'm back in town, they're starting to play well, and they just got this marquee player, you know, uh, maybe the Mets are interesting again. And uh, I think the Subway Series had a lot to do with that. Um, I already hated the Yankees growing up a Mets fan, and then four years in Boston, I really hated the Yankees. Uh, By now, I had a soft spot for the Red Sox, you know. 86 was ancient history, and I had spent four years in Boston going to Fenway, so, you know, hey, Ralphie. But yes, the rivalry with the Yankees uh, made it interesting again, too. They had just won the World Series in 96, and the Subway Series had just uh, become a thing. I remember working in a catering hall the day of that Subway Series game. It was just a back-and-forth game, 98, I believe, and Matt Franco won it, a walk-off hit, ninth inning, 10th inning, something like that, but just a crazy back-and-forth game, and that was like when the Subway Series was still fresh and new and about bragging rights, and in this uh, catering hall, which was half Met fans and half Yankee fans, it was just a blast and a great time, and they were just so much fun in uh, 1999, and it was a great year to kind of get back into it. Uh, Once they made the playoffs in, in 1999, I decided that I would dye my hair blue and orange. I mean, this was the time of, like, NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, and they all had, like, purple hair, and this was a pretty common thing in the day, and I just decided to do it Mets-themed colors uh, once they made the World Series. I think I did, like, 
the sides, the crown was blue and the top was orange. Uh, I think that's what we did. And uh, actually, after the 2000 World Series, I left it orange for a while because, as I said, a lot of people were doing that those days. More on that later. So in the 1999 playoffs, uh, when they're playing Arizona, I'm doing a production of Damn Yankees in Brooklyn. It was, you know, it was the day uh, Todd Pratt hit that walk-off home run and the Mets won that first series during the curtain call for Damn Yankees. I got the whole crowd in Brooklyn to cheer, let's go Mets. And then, oddly enough, I went to Arizona right after that because my best friend Vinny um, won. (laughs) I don't want to give any free advertising to a huge uh, cigarette company, but... There was a time in uh, the late 90s when there was a cigarette company. They had all these points to win prizes, and like the grand prizes were vacations at the cigarette company's ranch in in, Tucson, Arizona. Uh, So there was this 80s club in the village back in the day. It was called Culture Club. And one night, the people from this cigarette company were there, and, you know, like... I won a Zippo, but Vinny won uh, first prize. Vinny won a trip for two to this ranch in Arizona, all expenses paid, and I was lucky enough to be the person that he took. The only downside was this was really kind of like back to nature, no TV. There were radios in the room, uh, so we were able to listen to the NLCS and the ALCS, Vinny's a Yankee fan, and that was a Yankees-Red Sox-ALCS in 99. And then, of course, the Mets and Braves. The two of us were listening as uh, Kenny Rogers walked in that winning run for the Braves in, uh, in 99. So, yeah, the friggin' Yankees win the World Series again that year. But, uh, you know, you just felt like the Mets were uh, right on the verge, and they were. 2000 was an, uh, a, another great year, uh, an exciting year. Uh, I was bartending in Brooklyn Heights at a great old place called the Montague Street Saloon, uh, which uh, closed down in 2001. But, uh, you know, I was there during these 99 and 2000 Mets times, and it was a great, great place to uh, to watch the games in those days. After Game 2... It was that, you know, game two was the night Clemens threw at Piazza and threw the bat and that whole thing happened and uh, the Yankees beat up on him pretty bad. It was six, I mean, the Mets ended up scoring five runs in the ninth and, you know, almost coming back, but they they lost 6-5. And uh, I, (laughs) I remember getting up the morning, I mean, who am I kidding, probably afternoon after game two waking up in my bed in my Mets jersey uh, in a puddle of my own vomit. (laughs) It was like uh, symbolically what every Mets fan, I think, felt that day. And even though they came back and won game three, I think there was just that uh, awful feeling of uh, the Yankees are going to win this. The Yankees are going to... Yankees are going to beat the Mets in the Subway Series. I mean, it's, <clears throat> I mean, just that was the gamble of it. You know, we wanted to get there and uh, 
but you know, there's always the chance that, that you're going to lose and to lose to them. Ah, terrible. (sighs) Took a while to get over that. So the night that they did lose, uh, officially game five, I was with my friend Tasha at this bar in Park Slope. It was called Loki. It was owned by a couple of guys who were Mets fans. I used to run into them at Shea for years after that. Um, And I think they owned a couple of other bars in the neighborhood at that time. And yeah, so that was pretty much a Mets bar. And that was definitely a bummer when uh, Piazza flied out to end that World Series. And... (laughs) And then after the game, Tasha and I walked to a friend's house, a friend's apartment, because she was having a uh, a Halloween party. And, uh, you know, I, of course, was in a Mets jersey. Hopefully, uh, if it was the same one from game two, it had been dry cleaned by that point. You know, some dude on the streets like, my entire team sucks. And then, uh, you know, we get to the Halloween party and... Our friend Jessica opens the opens the door and goes, Tasha, the Yankees won the World Series. And I was like, oh, man, this hurts. Um, and it did, and it still does. I was at a game in 2001 against the Yankees. So, you know, they had beaten us in the Subway Series. I think this was the first series after, regular season series, at Shea, and the Yankees won the first two games. And now this was the Sunday night game. And they were winning again. It was close, but, you know, the Yankees were winning again, and their fans were just, this is our house. This is our house. And it was just, like, so low. I don't know what got into me. Probably, you know, 14 Bud Lights. I think we were sitting up in the loge or the mezzanine in right field, and I just started, you know, screaming at the top of my lungs, let's go, Mets, let's go, Mets. And they start to rally. They start to get a couple of hits. Let's go, Mets, let's go. I'm getting up on my chair. I'm screaming. I'm getting the whole section. Basically, I'm just trying to shut the Yankee fans up, you know? And, you know, the Mets are starting to come back and rally, and then Piazza hits that big home run to go against... Uh, to go up on the Yankees. I think it was like the bottom of the eighth inning. Uh, Sunday night game, 2001. It's just like, ugh, finally beat them. But like Piazza hit that home run, and I had been up on my seat and cheering and going crazy. He hits that home run. This woman comes down from like the top of the section, and she was like, thank you, thank you. You did that. You did that. (laughs) It's just crazy. You know how fans get just part of the the whole thing I, I I love about it you know and then uh 2002 came along and I had moved into Park Slope uh which was closer to the stadium so I thought hey this year I'm gonna go try and get a job at Shea Stadium and uh I got a job working for Aramark Catering uh up in the suites and uh these were really coveted jobs that uh, they were union jobs. People had been there for a while and they had their suites and they had their section. So I was really like low man on the totem pole. And I was like a busboy for these suites. While I was working there, I had some fun experiences. So this was all up on the suite level. And, uh, you know, there were suites in right field and suites in left field. And then in between around the home plate area 
was the Diamond Club and then like this bar and grill and the press boxes and uh, all that stuff. So, and being a busser, well, most of my job was to run food. It was like cold food was done in the right field kitchen and hot food was done in the left field kitchen. And those of us who were like runners or busboys or whatever, you know, we'd be back and forth all day getting the cold food, getting the hot food, bringing them to the sweets, blah, blah, blah. But we'd walk through that area 20, 30 times a day. Uh, And I finally discovered like, oh, if I went the outside way, I'll walk right by the radio and the TV booths. And one day I I was doing that and... uh, I happen to see Bob Murphy, and he goes, oh, hello there, young fella, like just so Murph, and he's smoking a cigarette in Shea Stadium in 2002. I mean, you're definitely not supposed to be doing that, and he is, uh, but he's Bob Murphy. He's in the Bob Murphy radio booth at Shea Stadium. He could do whatever he wants, offers me a cigarette, uh, and, you know, just said, oh, hello, talk to me for a couple of minutes, ask me what I did at the ballpark, and just uh, absolutely incredible memory. Uh, I also one day was walking through the Diamond Club, and I opened a door, and standing there was Tom Seaver. And uh, I did not know what to say, and all that came out was, uh, hello, Mr. The Franchise. And he just kind of rolled his eyes and <laughs> kept... Uh, kept going along his way. There were some suites that were owned, rented, whatever you want to say. You know, like Piazza had a suite that friends and family would use. Um, Bobby Valentine had a suite, and uh, Mo Vaughn had a suite. So every now and then, most games, Mo Vaughn's family would be uh, at the suite. And uh, if you remember this game in 2002 when Mo Vaughn hit that massive home run up uh, onto that scoreboard, it hit that big Budweiser sign above the scoreboard, and it was a huge late-game home run. And uh, I I ran into uh, Mo Vaughn's suite and high-fived his whole family. It uh, It was a great time. And usually I would be done with work by like the sixth or seventh inning. And, you know, most people, they're heading home. I'm like, great, I get to watch the last couple of innings of this game live. I have a ID on, so I'm sitting right behind the dugout, right behind home plate. Sometimes, if it's early enough, I can even get a beer and use my discount. It was just really, really good for, for a while there. Then uh, the Mets really fell off a cliff towards the end of the uh, 2002 season, and our living situation changed, uh, me and my girlfriend at the time, and I ended up having to go back to my parents' house, which was much further away, and, uh, you know, it was great being around baseball all the time, but I wasn't making enough to... uh, justify going out there from all the way from Gravesend an hour and a half each way on the subway. So uh, I ended up quitting, but I held on to that ID for years, and it got me everywhere. I mean, you want to talk about lax lax security, it's uh, 2007, and I'm still walking around getting into the Diamond Club whenever the hell I want with my 2002 Aramark ID.
I was able to show my sister and a couple of other people around a little bit with it. So, uh, you know, definitely worth it. In 2006, I was living with a girlfriend in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and I was working in Williamsburg. And as I said, you know, I was, when I was at my parents' house, I was really far from the ballpark. Well, now that I was working in Williamsburg, I would take the G to what, like Court Square and just get the seven from there and I could be at Shea within a half hour. And, uh, you know, when they were good and important games would come along in 06, if I was already at work, I was figured, hey, I'm halfway there, I might as well go. And even from Bay Ridge, it just seemed a lot quicker taking that N express train uh, into the city and then getting the 7 as opposed to uh, taking the F from where my parents live, which, you know, seems to stop every two feet between, uh, <clears throat> between Coney Island and uh, Queens. Uh, yeah, it just seemed a lot easier to get there all of a sudden. Uh, again, it didn't hurt that they were awesome again. What a great year. Ugh, they should have won that year. They should have won that year. Anyway, I fell in love with Indy Chavez that year. Uh, I started calling him Cha-Cha Chavez. And uh, there's actually a game. I have it on a VHS tape still. Uh, they were playing a doubleheader against the Braves kind of late in the season, August, September. And uh, I was at the afternoon game. I had to work for the night game, so I couldn't stay for the whole doubleheader. But uh, my girlfriend and I were at the afternoon game. And uh, it's like just us and a bunch of kids from camps and, and schools and stuff. Uh, so when Andy Chavez came up to bat, I would we would cheer cha-cha Chavez, cha-cha Chavez. And all the kids would start doing it too. And there's one at bat where you can actually hear us uh, yelling cha-cha Chavez. And then Keith Hernandez comments on it. Andy Chavez uh, was the heart and soul of that team, I believe. I got to see the clincher. Um, the game Traxel pitched against the Marlins. Someone had steel drums, and I just remember dancing to steel drums in the parking lot of Shea Stadium till like two in the morning that night. It was so much fun. It was the first kind of like clincher game I'd ever been to. And I think they could have clinched against the Pirates, if I remember correctly, like that whole weekend before. And I was looking into going to Pittsburgh. I was like, I want to see this clinch. And they lost all three games in Pittsburgh. So they came back home. I believe it was a Monday night. And uh, yeah, they clinched there. Isn't that funny? Like in 86, that happened too. Like they could clinch uh, against the Phillies. And they lost uh, all the games, all three games in Philadelphia. And then came back to New York and clinched against the Cubs. You know, the series against the Dodgers was a lot of fun. The series against the Cardinals was a lot of fun. And I won a lottery and I got tickets to Game 7 in 2006. Um, yes, the Andy Chavez game, the Yadier Molina game, the Adam Wainwright curveball to Carlos Beltran game. When I got there, the optimism in the air it was like this team was destined to win the world series and tonight they were gonna punch their ticket Ugh. and you know when Andy Chavez made that catch 
It, it just seemed like there was no way they were going to lose. There was no way they were going to lose that game. And, uh, and you know, when it was over, the difference, it was like a morgue. Uh, it, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before, especially compared to the optimism of just a few hours before. They should have won that year. I dyed my hair again that year. <laughs> and I believe after this, you know, because I would bleach it and then I would, and then the color would get painted on. And I think bleaching my hair all those times, that is when I began to go bald. Basically, I like to say that the Mets made me go bald. 07 and 08, you know, we know the stories. We know the failures. <laughs> there were some great moments those years, and, uh, you know, then there were the paper bag over the head moments. I do remember my dear friend Maria at her wedding in September of 07. Of course, I'm there. This time I'm not sitting in a room by myself, but uh, I do have I do have the radio in my ears and I'm listening to the game. <clears throat> I don't remember what the proper technology was at the time, but I've got something in my ear and I'm at Maria's wedding uh, listening to the Mets blow another game against Philly during that impossible uh, stretch at the end, you know, where they collapsed. Oh, right, but there was another occasion that year when I was, again, alone in the room watching the game while a party was going on, and that was um, July 7th, 070707. My friend Peter was having an 070707 party that had been planned for a while, and the Mets were playing the Astros, and it should have been over at a normal time, but this game went like 16, 17 innings or so. This was the game where Beltran ran up on that. Remember when they had that hill in center field in Houston? And he ran up on that hill and, and caught a ball to save the game. And it was, it was you know, again, a, a big raging party in the backyard. And I'm just sitting on the couch watching the Met game. Dude, I lived down the block. Like, I just could have gone home and watched the game. But it was like, ah, this game will be over any minute. And and, uh, and I'll join the party. <laughs> Stupid. Um, now, something else from this uh, post-06 period, we knew Shea was closing. Um, and so between the Mets and being a huge Beatles fan, I really felt like I got to get on that field before uh, before Shea closes. It's not like today. They're always having kids run the bases, adults run the bases, everybody runs the bases, you know, it's like when you watch the footage of the, like the 1912 World Series and they all go on the field and exit through center field. I mean, we're like going back to that. Kids today are all over all their fields and they don't realize how lucky they are. In my day, no, I mean, I've, I had to like scheme to get on the field at Shea Stadium. Meanwhile, I've already been on the field at City, uh, on the field at, yeah, at City Field three times already. Uh, so I figured a way I could possibly get on the field at Shea was, well, they were having a national anthem contest, you know, where you would come and uh, come to the SNY Studios, which then was uh, on 6th Avenue by Radio City, and you'd go and you'd audition there, and then the finalists would perform at Shea. So I was like, yeah, that's, 
I, I think that's how I'm going <laughs> to be able to finally get on the field. So in 07, of course, you know, story of my life, I woke up too late, I got there too late, and I missed the cutoff. So when it came around again in 08, I said, this is it. This is the last year of the stadium. This is my best chance of getting on the field without having to spend a night in jail. So I spent the night on 6th Avenue, and I was like number two or number three of the National Anthem Contest. Uh, And I got in, and I sang... It was actually featured on New York One, I think. Again, I have that somewhere on VHS. And I did it. I, I got the call back. So I was one of 10 people invited to come to the callback and sing on the field at Shea to an empty stadium. You know, nobody's there. There's no game going on. It's just you and, like, a guest and whoever is judging the contest, and, you know, you get to see what you sound like uh, singing on the microphone at the stadium. Um, and actually, my name, all of our names, when you went up to sing, they put your name up on the scoreboard, and I've got a nice picture of my name on the scoreboard at Shea. Yeah, it was a great memory. Now, I did not win the contest, so I did not get to sing the national anthem. And, dude, I mean... I don't know if I could do that. That sounds really nerve-wracking at a major league game. I did it last year at a spring training game uh, here in Arizona. Very few people are paying attention (laughs) at a spring training game. People are finding their seats. You know, those who are there are paying attention, but not a lot of people are in their seats for the first pitch of any game these days, especially a spring training game, you know. So uh, it wasn't as nerve-wracking as I thought, but like a regular season game... With, you know, also spring training games, what, six, seven thousand people? I know it sounds like a lot, but compared to uh, 30, 40,000 people, it wasn't too bad. Um, anyway, the goal was not to sing the national anthem before a Mets game. The goal was to get on the field at Shea Stadium, and I did it. I was able to buy tickets for the final game at Shea. And uh, the whole idea behind that for me was I wanted to take the people who had taken me to the Mets games over the years. And uh, so I got tickets for me, uh, my mom, my dad, and my sister. And we went to that awful last game at Shea. I mean, we all know what happened and, you know, the circumstances of the day and doing the ceremony after instead of before, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was a great memory for me to be able to take my parents on that last day and Helen. The fact that I got to be in the same ballpark with my dad and Willie Mays is just uh, absolutely unforgettable. So even though uh, the season didn't turn out the way we wanted to, I would not trade that day for uh, for anything in the world. So then it's uh, 2009, more uh, Mets misery and injuries. Uh, City Field opens, you know, but it's very expensive and the Mets aren't great. However, I, I still paid attention to them, mainly at this point because of Gary, Keith, and Ron. I mean, even though the Mets were bad, these three guys were always entertaining and they were always like these friendly voices I could have in the background of whatever else was going on, whether I wanted to really pay attention to the game or 
they just became those three constant companions that I think we all adore. And what I was also doing during these years, because it was closer and because it was cheaper, was I was going to a lot of Brooklyn Cyclones games. They were doing these Sunday five o'clock games for a few years. Oh, I just loved it. It was perfect. Not too early, not too late. Um, I could watch the Mets at one in the afternoon and then go to the Cyclones game at five. Or if the Mets were like the Sunday night game of the week, you know, the ESPN game, I would go to the Cyclones game at five and then come home and watch the Mets or go to the bar down the block and watch the Mets. And yeah, I went to a ton of Cyclones games during those years. I called it uh, going to therapy. It was just going to watch minor league baseball by the beach and probably drink several beers. But like 2015 came along and SNY was doing this game show called Beat the Booth. Uh, The year before, in 2014, I believe they did it where the radio team went up against the TV team. But now this version in 2015... They were going to have uh, Gary Cohen and Howie Rose against Met fans. And they had these tryouts at Citi Field. Uh, So I was working at a great bar in the village that I worked at for nine years called Marie's Crisis. But uh, anyway, I was working a shift at Marie's. And then when that was done, probably about four in the morning... I got on the train out to City Field, and, you know, I sat there and I held the spot, uh, and then Helen came and joined me in the morning, and we were the trivia team, and I think they really liked the idea of a brother and sister team, because we made it to the next round, and uh, we actually got to do a practice game on the set. We ended up being the runners-up, so we were invited to the taping, like, just in case the team that made it Couldn't show up. We were there just in case. But uh, we got to sit and watch the taping. But uh, we came really close to being on Beat the Booth and uh, going up against uh, Gary and Howie. That's how the 2015 season started for me. Then, all of a sudden, the Mets were good. So they had won like nine in a row in April. And I'm like, you know, I kind of... I kind of want to go see what this is about. I was dating someone at the time who really, who drove everywhere. In New York City, some people drive, some people, but most people take the train. Some people do like half and half, but you know, uh, she really drove everywhere. So it was like, well, maybe, you know, and I'm a little older and a little more mature. Maybe if I drive to the game and don't drink 10 beers and spend $300, Going to the ball game may be uh, a pretty cheap option for a night out, and if the Mets are good, why not? So, yeah, I ended up going to the 10th game of that 11-game winning streak and sort of realizing that it just became a thing. Like, well, you know, if we go there and just, you know, have a soda and a little something to eat and drive there and drive home. Oh, yeah, you know, find parking in Corona or in Flushing Street Parking where you can just walk to the stadium. It ends up being cheaper than a movie. So in 2015, I discovered this, and the Mets were getting good again, 
And so I just, I started going to more games. And like from 2015 to 2019, I would say I was going to 20 games a year. Uh, What was so enjoyable to me about the 2015 Mets were that they were in fact these Brooklyn Cyclones that I had been going to see these years before. Guys who were playing for the Cyclones who ended up on the Mets in 2015, and now they were winning. It was kind of like, you know, being a theater person and having gone to school for acting. It was kind of like, you know, when my friend from college gets a Broadway show. You know, it it was kind of like the same feeling. I, I was so proud of them that they were not only in the major leagues, but since succeeding at the major league level. So yeah, there were a lot of memorable games for me in uh, in 2015. I remember going to the game uh, where Kershaw like nearly pitched a perfect game. It was like a couple of days before they got Cespedes, or the day before they got uh, Johnson and Uribe, and uh, Kershaw was just brilliant against them because they had no offense to speak of. Um, <laughs> I went with my friend Mike, and we were on mushrooms. My awesome friend Mike Staten, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, we were working on a show with someone who was able to get psychedelic mushrooms, and we hadn't done them in several years. We were like, oh, let's do that and go to the Met game. That just happened to be that night that uh, Kershaw killed them, and we were walking around, you know, like a couple of monkeys at the zoo, and... uh yeah, that was right before the Cespedes trade. And then that weekend, I ended up going to two out of three of those uh, games against the Nationals when the Mets moved into first place. I think it was just about August 1st. I mean, yeah, right after the trade deadline, uh, Helen and I were there for that Friday night game where Wilmer hit the walk-off home run. Uh, you know, obviously the day or two after his uh, crying incident and then I went back for that Sunday night game. I think they hit back-to-back-to-back home runs, Duda and Murphy and uh, someone else. I could be wrong. Maybe it was just Duda and Murphy. But uh, yeah, the Sunday night game when they officially moved into first place and then uh, never looked back. So then the postseason rolled around. I don't know why I didn't try to get tickets to any of the games against the Dodgers. But then with the NLCS, you know, I was just like looking at the Mets website, looking at StubHub, going back and forth. Am I going to do this? You know, don't think this is going to work now. I don't know. This was years ago. I'm sure systems have changed and protocols have changed. But here's what happened in 2015. If it was an eight o'clock game, let's say five o'clock, all of the tickets from StubHub disappeared And then they were back on the Mets website at, like, the original normal prices. Uh, You know, still expensive, but, like, for a playoff game, not bad at all. And so I was able to score a ticket to Game 1 of the NLCS for, like, $115 to sit up in right field, like, in 401, 402, around there. Uh, Great seats. A great game, obviously. Matt Harvey pitched that night. I just remember the crowd yelling, Harvey, Harvey, all at different times. And it was just so 
haunting. I mean, it was haunting for me, and I was rooting for Harvey. I can imagine how it felt uh, for the Cubs. But it was fucking freezing that night. It was the coldest game I have ever been to. So, yes, I bought this seat. But I don't think I stayed in there because I just had to keep moving. I just had to keep walking around and keep the blood flowing throughout my body because it was like 40 degrees with the wind whipping around. And uh. and then the next night I was like, well, let me try it again. And I actually had a friend who was a Cub fan who was like, well, if you can do it, get me one too. And the same exact thing happened. 5 o'clock, 5.30, whenever it was, all the tickets off of StubHub, back on the Mets website, like $115 to sit in the first row of uh, the 400s. Got the tickets again, went, you know, they beat the Cubs that night again on the way to sweeping in the World Series. But, of course, we all know how (laughs) the 2015 World Series went. Uh, I was not able to get tickets to the World Series. It did not happen the same way and probably won't ever happen that way again but i'm glad it happened then the first pitch of the 2015 world series it was over as far as i was concerned that inside the park home run off of cespedes glove it just seemed like uh that's the way the whole series was gonna go and uh and it did so by the time 2016 runs around i'm now working full-time at marie's crisis and finally making some decent money And um, so this is when I decide to start going on vacations again, and most of them revolve around the Mets. So in 2016, I made a plan to go out to see the Mets on the West Coast in San Diego and L.A. The Seven Line Army was in San Diego that same weekend. I didn't have tickets with the Seven Line Army. But I had some friends who were going as part of that group. So I went to go meet up with them uh, before the game at the the meetup spot, which was some bar in the Gaslight District. Is that what it's called? Gaslamp District? So I went to meet up with them, and what ended up happening was this impromptu parade or march, whatever you want to call it, of just hundreds of Met fans walking from this bar in downtown San Diego over to Petco Park. And uh, it totally stopped traffic. And it's kind of become like a seven-line army tradition, I believe. I was a part of it again in Boston and then in Cincinnati, but I think they pretty much do it at every out-of-town get-together where there's a pregame meeting spot, and then if possible, they all kind of parade over to the stadium but this was the first one I believe and it was kind of impromptu and it was just uh, so much fun and then we go to the game and um, as I said I'm not sitting with the seven line army for this one Um, I have sat with them several times I love them I love Darren I love what they do Um, and I have been a part of the group several times But sometimes I also like getting a ticket on the other side of the park to watch them because that's really entertaining as well. So this game in San Diego, I did not have uh, a ticket with the seven line. Who knows where my ticket was? But uh, I I was hungry and I was like, all right, I'm going to go get nachos. And I go, uh, go off to find some nachos. 
And then I hear, now batting, number 40, the pitcher, Bartolo Colon. And I say, oh, let me, I want to see this. So the nachos can wait. And I went, you know, and found a spot where I could stand and watch the game for a couple of minutes. And you all know what happens next. Bartolo launches his uh, first career home run to the amazement of fans all around the world. And uh, yeah, at that moment, I was close to home plate. And I believe the Seven Line Army was out in right field, right center field. And just to look out there and see this giant blue and orange wave jumping up and down. It was one of the most incredible things I had ever seen between the parade and then that moment with Bartolo. Oh, what an incredible experience that was. And then later that night, um, Syndergaard was across the street from wherever uh, the whole Seven Line gang was hanging out. And, you know, word kind of got out and, you know, we ran across and I got a picture taken with him, and he was with some other guy who actually uh, turned out to be Robert Gazelman, but I didn't know that till later, and more on him in a bit, but um, <clears throat> that was a great trip. And then a few days later, I went to L.A., and that was the game where Syndergaard hit two home runs. So uh, just an incredible uh, West Coast road trip for the Mets and uh, for me. Uh, 2016, you know, again, we all know what happened. Broken Hearts in October, once again, uh, was there for Reyes' first game back. In 2017, I went to spring training for the first time since, uh, since 1988. That was a lot of fun. I got to see a game with my cousin. I believe that might have been the last professional hit David Wright got was in that spring training game, if that counts. I don't know. Uh, and I could be wrong. Oh, I went to that uh, Duffy's on the night that they filmed that special for SNY, and that was a lot of fun. I got a lot of great pictures and got to chat with uh, Terry Collins for a few minutes, and uh, I highly recommend doing that if you do the the spring training trip. Um, in 2018 and 2019, I went to Miami in April, both of those seasons, in 2018, I went on a road trip at the end of July to see them play in Pittsburgh, and PNC Park is really nice. I was going to go to two games, but I ended up doing three, and I think DeGrom was pitching that third game, so I think that was a large part of the reason why I stayed. And then I went to Baltimore. The Mets weren't there, but I just wanted a check that stadium off my list and then the Mets were going to DC and I wanted to see them play a game there and the Mets ended up losing like 24 to 5 some one of those ridiculous games and of course I stayed till the very end but it was a painful one now that trip is significant for a couple of reasons in Pittsburgh I was hanging out at a bar after the game I know shocker and Robert Gazelman walked in. And, you know, I recognized him, and I said hello, and uh, I had actually been out by the bullpen, because you could sit right next to the Mets bullpen in, in Pittsburgh. So I had been there 
you know, pretty much for two games in a row. It was like around the trade deadline. It was the end of July, end of July and I remember like getting trade updates on my phone and yelling them into the Mets bullpen because, you know, we were all getting the news first on our phones before they were because uh, they were in the game. Uh, so Gazelman actually kind of recognized me and I said hello to him because I had been at the bullpen and uh, I asked if I could buy him a drink. And uh, he said, wow, you know, when I run into fans, they're always asking me for pictures, for autographs. He was like, I never really had a fan offer to give me anything before. So I think it's because of that that he kind of remembered me for the next couple of years. And anytime I would see uh, Gazelman, I would yell, Bobby G! And uh, I'm pretty loud, so he generally heard me and would turn around and wave. Fenway Park... We're in the bleachers in the 48th row behind the Mets bullpen. And I know that because 48 DeGrom. And, you know, I was telling this story to my friends and, the you know, loud and drunkly, everybody around me could hear it too. And I was like, wait, I bet I can get Gazelman to turn around and wave. So I stood up 48 rows up above the Mets bullpen and yelled, Bobby G! And sure as shit, Gazelman turned around and waved. <laughs> and this went on for a couple of years, and uh, it was a very good sport about it all. Anyway, the other reason this road trip is significant was that the day that I got back from the road trip was when I met Lauren, who is now my wife. So yeah, she is now a part of all most of the Mets memories that are going to be mentioned, you know, from this point forward. Uh, and just a few weeks after we met, she joined us on that trip to Fenway Park to see the Mets up in Boston. You know, she's very artistically inclined, but, you know, I, I said, let's make a sign for Fenway Park that says, can't we all just get along and hate the Yankees? And uh, so she made that sign, and we went to two games at Fenway Park holding that sign. And I've got to tell you, we probably took a 100 pictures at each game with people who said, oh, can we take a picture with your sign? Can we take a picture with you and your sign? And it was just, uh, it was a big hit. And there's probably pictures of me and Lauren all over Red Sox fans, uh, Instagram and Facebook and whatever. Of course, the two games we went to, the Mets lost. They uh, beat the Red Sox. And this is 2018, so this is a great Red Sox team that goes on to win the World Series. The Friday night, Lauren and I are there. Uh, we're sitting at the train station waiting for Helen to get to town. And the Mets win like 8-1 to one or something. And then, of course, the two games we go to, uh, Saturday with the 7 line, where it's like, 400 degrees in Boston in September and we're marching through Bo uh <laughs> we're marching through the back bay a bunch of sweaty idiots and we lost that Saturday game and then the Sunday game was Chris Sale pitching for the Red Sox against DeGrom a great pitching matchup but uh Mets lost that one to Nimmo Homer I believe over the over the monster and that was 2018 2019 when they kind of got their shit together late in the summer and uh, made a run at it. They had a doubleheader against the Marlins on August 5th 
And on that day, I just happened to discover through the ballpark app that this was the way you got on the field for that, you know, Toyota truck trivia or whatever that, uh, you know, Mike, the in-game host, would get you down on the field and ask you questions and you won gift cards. And uh, it was on this August 5th. I figured two games, I got two chances. And uh, for the night game, I was picked to go on the field I, and answer the trivia questions. I got all three. I cannot remember what the first two questions were, but the third question was uh, Todd Pratt hitting that home run against the uh, Diamondbacks. I still had an email from Helen from when we were doing Beat the Booth, which was like, you know, a Mets trivia cheat sheet. And so, like, before I was going out for the trivia, I was just going over that, going over that. And for some reason, I was like, you got to remember Matt Manti. You got to remember Matt Manti. He's the guy that gave up the home run to Todd Pratt. And then when the question was who hit the home run, I almost said Matt Manti. But thankfully, uh, my uh, tongue caught up with my brain or vice versa. And uh, I said Todd Pratt and uh, won the gift cards. Uh, we got to see a lot of great moments that year. We saw Alonzo's first home run in Miami, and then we saw his 50th home run in Cincinnati. Again, another uh, seven-line trip. And I'm sure we saw a couple of the big home runs in between. I think we were there either the night he tied Beltron for the Mets record or went ahead of Beltron for the Mets record. I don't know. But we were definitely there for number one and for number 50. And then, you know, there was 2022, which was the best season in a long time. And it just felt like, oh, great, I moved across the country and the Mets are, and the Mets are good again. But, you know, if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. It, but it was like a kick in the sack because I also love the Rangers and the Rangers were awesome last year and made it so deep into the playoffs. And then, you know, the Mets had such a good year. It's really weird getting used to. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we're going to talk about with the guests. But I mean, games are on at four o'clock in the afternoon or on the weekends. Sometimes they're on at 10 in the morning. I was working at the ballpark, so I kind of got good at uh, not finding out the highlights of the games. I couldn't ignore the score between the scoreboards in the stadium and my phone and social media. I pretty much knew if they won or lost, even if I couldn't see the game. I tried to stay away from the details, and then I would come home and watch the game on MLB TV. And, and then, you know, the Diamondbacks are on the road every other week, so I can watch the, watch the Mets in real time. When the Mets came to Arizona early in the season, I didn't work that first game, and Lauren and I went as fans, and that was the game. Like, Diaz was so brilliant last season. Just a couple of bad moments, and that, of course, was one of them. He blew that save that first game in Arizona. The Mets still won the game, but the Diamondbacks tied it up in the ninth, and then the Mets ended up winning in 10 or maybe 11. And then I worked the next two Met games, and in the middle game, that's when I met Braden, who will be our guest on episode number three. I figured now that we're in this part of the country, I want to see some of these stadiums at this end of the world. So we made reservations to go to Colorado, to Denver, to see the Mets play there on May 20th and May 21st. Well, wouldn't you know it, 
Denver got hit with a huge snowstorm on May 20th, and uh, the game was snowed out. Uh, <laughs> they actually, that was a Friday night game that got snowed out. And then on Saturday, they played a doubleheader, which was not bad, even though it was like 45 degrees. It still wasn't that bad in the sun. Uh, and the Mets won the first game. They lost the game that night. It had gotten colder, but we all had beer blankets on by then. Again, another seven-line outing and a lot of fun, but just crazy that on May 20th, the game is getting snowed out anywhere. And, uh, you know, I left the East Coast to get away from snow. And then, like, <laughs> May 20th, I run into snow out here. The final games I attended in 2022 were in Oakland when, uh, in September. Lauren's kids and my stepkids moved to Sacramento last year. So we thought it would be a good time to go pick them up in Sacramento and then take them to Oakland to see their first baseball game. And that's what we did. And it was just, it ended up being really one of the best nights of my life. Um, I mean, the Mets were great. They were playoff bound, even though uh, they were having a rough September, you know, which kind of led to a rougher October. But they were still... Uh, having a great year and closing in on 100 wins if they weren't, yeah, yeah closing in on 100 wins. Uh, and, you know, the kids had an absolute blast. I'm not saying these kids are going to be the biggest baseball fans going forward, but, you know, their first game is something they're always going to remember no matter what. And uh, so the Mets won. It's Oakland Coliseum, which is a dump, but it's like historic and uh, has so much character. I absolutely loved it. And then there were fireworks after the game, and they loved that. So it was just such a great night. And then I had tickets to the game the next day. Lauren took the kids to do some other stuff, and I was going to go to the game uh, with the seven line the next day. And DeGrom was pitching, and he was terrible. And even though the Mets scored a lot of runs and Oakland just outscored them that day. But again, it was a good time, and I hung out, like I said, with the Seven Line and with my new friend Dennis Wu, who will be the guest on Episode 2. You'll learn more about him and how we met and his story. And uh, I think that pretty much takes us up to date. We know what happened at the end of 2022. We don't need to analyze it any further. That's been done. So I thank you for listening to all of this. And uh, hopefully you will tune in again next time where it's not just me yammering. And uh, we'll start bringing in some of our guests. So with that, let me just say, let's go Mets. Intro and outro announcer, Matthew Carey. Artwork by Lauren Gunn. Music by Braden and Nancy Pastor. How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? <laughs> This has been Mets Fans Out West, hosted by Steve Velarde. Until next time, Mets fans, thanks for listening. What the hell is this podcast? And who the hell is this guy? This is Walter Cronkite. No, it's not. It's not Walter Cronkite.